0: hi i'm lou eisen welcome to ring talk and uh, we have a great fight to to uh start the or end your weekend on i should say may 24th 1968 new york city new york madison square garden it's a worldwide heavyweight title fight between dick tiger and and the world light heavyweight champion. He held WBA, WBC titles, and the challenger Bob Foster. Now there was a big um difference in in uh height and reach. Foster was uh 6'3, Tiger was 6'8, or excuse me, 6'8, Tiger was 5'8 and and also uh foster had a an 11-inch uh, reach advantage he was also 11 to five favorite in the fight um both men took circuitous routes to to get to this particular bout dick tagger was born in nigeria and uh magbo nigeria august 24th 1929 it was known as the colony of nigeria then it was a british colony and his total boxing record he had 82 fights 60 wins 27 by knockout 19 losses and three draws. dick tiger was built like a sherman tank thick huge thighs that were as big as other guys waists and also had a barrel chest thick arms and um, started boxing in in uh, nigeria and when you look at his early record he fought guys you know that were Named Black Power, Super Black Power, you know, Mr. Big, Strong, uh, Hurricane Wind, just odd names. So his early record is sketchy. He he did well. He, as I said, his birth name was actually Richard ohhetu and and he fought. He was so aggressive when he fought that they said he fought like a tiger. So instead of uh, an announcer trying to announce to they just said Tiger, and then he took the name Dick Tiger. Uh, after fighting for a short time in Nigeria, he moved to Britain where he didn't have good luck. He emigrated to Liverpool and he lost a bunch of fights uh, when he first started out in Britain. And because of that, uh, he changed manager and he got a, a much better manager. And he was a two time undisputed world middleweight titleist. And he, you know, he's one of those guys. Uh, Dick Taggart that brought people out to the fights. He put asses in the seats. He helped save boxing in that sense um, because people just would come out and pay a lot of money to see him. With Dick tiger you didn't get a boring fight. No one would sit there and go boo because it was boring or nothing was happening. He went out to take your head off every round. And he first won the title, uh, I guess, in the 50s. I guess. He first won a title against Gene Fomer, fought him in the 1950s. And he won the uh, fought in '62, excuse me, but he had fought in the 1950s. So had Fulmer, Fulmer been the world champion. And he won a WBA world middleweight title October 23rd, 1962. And then he won uh, after that. He he lost it and he won it again. And then uh, after he won it again, he lost it to Emil Griffith and he lost it to Jory Deere, Jello then then he went up and fought uh, griffith griffith beat him and then he went up to light heavyweight after that but when he won he beat a really good champion october twenty third, 1962 he beat jose torres it was trained by customado and customado trained mike tyson and floyd patterson and many other fighters and he, when he was starting his career out in england he was based in liverpool and he was getting really small purses on undercards. His career wouldn't move ahead. And um, he uh, fought a really well-known future champion, Terry Downs, who was heavily favored. I think there's a bit of racism in that, and they knocked him out in six rounds. So his new management saw that they got him a great trainer and they corrected some of his errors. You know, he, he would leap in at times with punches and that would expose his chin, so he, the new trainer, new management—they fixed everything—and it really took off for him when he moved into the United States. Uh, he won, um, uh, you know, after he started, about four or five years in. He's in still in Britain. He won the British middleweight title, and he also took took 17 of 19 fights in the year that he won that. So, he was uh, managed by uh, Jersey Jones, an independent, and then he came to America uh as he said to face adversity in a whole new way um he resisted the influence of his manager of uh madison square garden and broker deals for for uh, tiger all by himself so rather than getting in with them uh it was a stupid move because it cost tiger a lot of money and he was fighting in edmonton which is not a, which is a great city city of champions but it's not a boxing city and he was fighting for small money And he lost a really questionable decision for the Empire middleweight title to Wilf Greaves. And it was a fight that Tiger won, without a doubt. But the ironic thing, of course, is Canadian boxing judges now, you know, try to bend over backwards to help a Canadian fighter win. And back then they didn't. But this was the exception and Wilf Greaves won. Wilf Greaves was a great fighter. If you don't know Wilf Greaves, look him up. One of Canada's greatest fighters. Um, the, what happened with the Wilf Greaves fight, it was called the draw and then judges met and because the manager of Tiger Jones demanded a recount and then they said they'd made a mistake and they changed it to a win for Greaves. And if you see the fight, Tiger dominates the fight from first to last and Tiger never argued things like that. He was very honest, uh, but in the long run, it cost him. And uh, the great writer A.J. Liebling, if you don't know A.J. Liebling, um, he was the one that labeled it the sweet science and he uh, he want Dick Tiger to take on Henry Hank, another fighter, an unsung great fighter from that era. And the way Liebling became a template, the way he described Dick Tiger, he said, Dick Tiger had a chest like an old fashioned black office safe dropping away to a slender waist, big thighs and slender legs. He boxed classically, his arms tight against his sides. He would box like this from a crouch. Uh, and at the beginning of each punch, um, you know, he would throw straight punches from the shoulder and he was methodical with his shots. He knew where to place them. And he was sort of like Arthur Bitterby who threw the shots in short arts uh they didn't travel much distance four inches three inches but boy when they landed they had a lot of impact and um he um Gene Fulmer was a guy who was like one of my favorite fighters who I was lucky enough to meet Fulmer was built like a Sherman tank he was a heavyweight in a middleweight's body and to have a guy like that and challenge him for the title I mean Fulmer had a lot of wear and tear but still that's a tough fight and he said, Tiger was a tough guy. You know, I went to Nigeria to fight him and and I don't know what happened. He just beat me and he beat me bad. And uh, uh, he said, didn't matter if uh, my mom or dad was a referee, I couldn't have won one round from Tiger in Nigeria because he was so strong and so dominating. Fighters like to take time off in the ring. So after a clinch, I'll walk back a couple, you know, feet, five, 10 feet, hitch up their trunks. Tiger didn't do that. If you did that against him, he was on top of you right away, whacking you to the body and to the head. And so Tiger didn't have a lot of knockouts. You know, he's more of a distance fighter. And um, he was very frustrated because he lost the title to Joey Giard- Giardello. And, you know, there's a return clause. He get a return match, but Giardello didn't honor it. He made him wait two years before he fought him and beat him again. And um, you know, he, he he said, if I'd come to America and met Giardello and his kind of people first, I would have gone home. Because this is not how you treat people. He said, you can't sign a contract for a certain date to fight and then just decide not to honor it. So um, uh, Tiger wanted to trade punches with him. And Giardello was more of a stick and move boxer, and Giardello apparently said to Howard Postel, "I wouldn't trade stamps with him, let alone punches." So, uh, you know, he was a solid guy. He was a decent guy. He, he I'm not saying he, he was smart, but he he didn't put on airs, and he had the face, uh, the incomparable Bob Foster. Foster. Was 6'3, and he was just a magnificent light heavyweight. You, you can uh, go on YouTube and look at Bob Foster. Foster's interesting because uh, when you look at him, he, I mean, he's a big, slender guy, and his management early on incorrectly tried to get him into the heavyweight division. And the reason for that was there's more money in the heavyweight as a light heavyweight. Foster couldn't fight heavyweight. At six foot three, 175 pounds was his maximum. So he had to go up to like, you know, 185, 190, and that just wasn't good enough. He lost to Doug Jones, who uh, George Vallon knocked out and Ali beat, but Jones came close to beating a young Cassius Clay when they fought. But the thing with that was, Foster was the bigger man, but Jones, who himself had been a light heavyweight, had come up in weight and he was just physically too big for a guy like foster foster got knocked out by joe frazier he got stopped by ernie terrell who was 6'6 and he also got stopped by by muhammad ali He, he he periodically after he won the light heavyweight title would go up and fight various heavyweights but his luck never changed he wasn't physically strong enough to deal with the heavyweight punch but i'm telling you when you saw him fight someone like Mike Corey, Jerry Corey's younger brother, and he hit him with a left hook, Corey was out for 30 minutes. And people, when I watched that fight, I, you know, I thought he'd killed him. And most people thought he killed him. Like the announcers weren't even talking. It, it, it was the most devastating knockout I've ever seen. He just fell on his back, his arms splayed by his side. and He was out and they're giving the smelling salts and they're, you know, turning his head and nothing and they had doctors working on him for a long time, and finally he came around, but he was never the same again, you know, in or out of the ring. Bob Foster at light heavyweight was a devastating puncher, and very few people could uh, could uh, withstand what he could do. Um, he was born uh, Bob Foster in Texas, but moved to Albuquerque, and Albuquerque became his home. You know what's interesting about that, of course, is, is um, with Albuquerque as home. Um, years later, he became a sheriff. He was a deputy sheriff originally, but he was the sheriff in, in a, down there in Albuquerque. And George Chevaldo, one of his sons, I think Mitch was driving there and he pulled him over. And I don't know if it was for speeding, but for some infraction, and Foster asked to see his driver's license and he showed it to him in the wallet. And he said, Chevaldo, do you know George? It's my dad so foster was so kind he called him you know went back to the station and said i have your son mitch here and george was worried he said no 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 he was just i think he said he was just speeding a bit but I, i'm not going to give him a ticket i just want to let you know he's all right and that's the kind of guy he was he had a very deep voice like james earl jones and uh, as i said six foot three born april twenty seventh, 1942 in Borger, texas and uh, um you know, 13 years younger than uh, Dick Tagger, who was August 14th, 1929. And uh, Foster, you know, went through the light heavyweight division. He just started to flatten people like it was no one's business. So he, he, uh, he fought in the Air Force. He won uh, Air Force tournaments. He won the AAU. He won the Pan American Games. And... Um, He uh, won the Golden Gloves, and he started his professional career on March 27, 1961, knocked out a guy named Duke Williams in Washington, D.C. in two rounds. Uh, He he also had bad management. It's it's, it's hard to um, understate how critical good management is and guide you all the way. You know, Angel Dundee's fighters had good management through him and his brother, Chris, and that's very important get the right fights at the right time. You fight someone who's a bit better than you, but you can beat him, but you can also learn from him. This didn't happen. So Foster went around fighting in different places, Eastern United States, Eastern Canada, and he wasn't making much money. He was earning the short-end money and working his butt off. And then his first loss came against Doug Jones in four rounds when his manager thought, yeah, we'll take the money grab and go up, not realizing that, You know, Foster was doing well. as a light heavy. Leave him alone. But uh, the manager didn't care about his welfare. Foster, when he fought in the amateurs, was actually a middleweight. But because of his size, you know, he kept putting on weight. And he went back to the States, changed management, and he started to get these quick knockouts. Foster was an orthodox fighter, but he had one of the best left hooks I've ever seen. And in 1964, he made a mistake because he went up to heavyweight again and fought Ernie Terrell, who was 6'6", 240, and Terrell just decimated him. And uh, then he had three more uh, knockout wins at light heavyweight. And he beat a lot of good guys. Don Quinn, he beat in the first round. But the big one was when he knocked out ha- Henry Hank. Henry Hank's one of those unsung heroes in boxing. He didn't win a title, but was always in the top, ranked in the top two, three all the time always a tough fighter, sort of a gatekeeper. Uh, 1965 comes along, he wins four fights, loses one, beats Hank again, but loses to Zorro Foley, another heavyweight by decision, Foley lost to Ali and to uh, Liston. So these these guys, these heavyweights, he just can't compete. He doesn't have the poundage on his body, the armor, to take these kind of shots from how big the heavyweights are. His punch... He can hit, his punch is devastating at light heavyweight, but at heavyweight, it's a good punch, but it's not a knockout punch. So he beats Leroy Green in uh, 1968, or 66, excuse me. By 1967, um, he wants to, you know, still give heavyweight a try, but he's frustrated, and the ring ratings come out and he's ranked number one at light heavy, ranked number one at light heavyweight. So he figures, why not concentrate on this? You know, there's so much more money at heavyweight. and But he just can't succeed at heavyweight. So he was frustrated, and he started to improve his quality of opposition. So he beats Eddie Cotton, who became a referee, as we all know, and Sonny Moore. And then after that, he was rated as the number one challenger for the light heavyweight title. And this happened in 1968. He got his shot at uh, Madison Square Garden on uh, May 24th, March 24th, excuse me. And May 24th, I got that wrong. And he fights Dick Tiger and the disparity in weight and not necessarily weight, but excuse me, height. The disparity in height is so dramatic. It almost looks like an optical illusion because, you know, you have one, you know, Tiger's down here, he's here, he's got a punch down and he let him the fight favorite and you watch the fight and he comes out and he's jabbing tiger and Tiger's is trying to get by his jab but he can't foster's jab is so quick and of course foster's hungry all the years of fighting you know eight to ten years of fighting and getting screwed over and ripped off and and all the disappointments and this is his one chance to grab it and get money and Tiger's. Doing his best, Tiger fought from an exaggerated crouch, which was smart. If you're finding a guy that that, that is that much taller, you want to make your uh, height differential. You want to exaggerate it, exaggerate it. You want to make your weakness your strength. So they're going at it and Foster's winning the rounds. Uh, first round, he wins decisively. Second round, you can tell Tiger's frustrated. Dick Tiger is very frustrated. Um, This title means everything to him because Tiger had a lot of frustration in his career. He was one of the few champions I think lost his first six professional fights or whatever, but kept going because he had such a belief in himself. And he took on all comers, you know. Um, And there was no way to avoid Bob Foster at that point because he was the uncrowned light heavyweight champion. So Tiger has the belt, you know, that he won from Jose Torres. And Jose Torres won it from Angel Dundee's finder, Willie Pastrano, who won it from Harold Johnson. And, you know, these, these were all great fights and they're fighting and second round, third round goes to Foster. And it's such a dramatic thing because you can see it in color on YouTube where, you know, Tiger's bobbing and weaving and trying to get Foster to commit so he can counter him. And he, he ducks. And as he comes up, Foster clocks him with the left hand. It's the only time in Dick Tiger's career of almost 70 fights that he got knocked out cold. He's flattened on the canvas. His head, it still shakes me up. His head makes a huge thud when it hits the canvas. Bang. And then he, he lifts his head up a bit and then he's back. He's out. He can't move. And he you know, he needed to be he needed medical attention and Bob Foster is going crazy, but it, it, it just seemed like an odd thing to me to watch because of the disparity in height and reach. It almost seemed like a grown man punishing his son, but it was a dramatic knockout. It's one of the most dramatic knockouts I've ever seen, and Foster reached a mountaintop. He achieved his goal. Dick Tiger, at that point, unfortunately didn't have many years to live. Dick Tiger, as I said, is from Nigeria, and Nigeria was going through a civil war where a part of Nigeria named Biafra wanted to separate so he fought on but he went back and fought in nigeria and then he just he he came back to the states to fight a bit went back to nigeria to biafra in the civil war and he disappeared and we don't know how he what happened to him we know that he died uh at the age of 42 december 14th 1971 in in um abba a colony of nigeria and it's, it's sad. Uh, they found out later that he died from cancer. He'd known he'd had cancer for a long time, but he didn't tell anyone. He didn't want people to feel sorry for him and treat him differently. You know, his record, he had 82 fights, 60 wins, 27 knockouts, 19 losses, and 3 draws. And a lot of those losses, I would say a good 8, 9 of them at least, were, were um, uh, how would I say, suspicious you know, fights that were close, but because he didn't have the power in his corner to make the judges honest, he didn't get the decision. Um, Foster went on, you know, they had a common opponent, Frankie de Paula. Frankie de Paula, a book out on him. He's an interesting guy. He was a full-time mobster, a gangster who killed people, but, but he was also a light heavyweight. And so Tiger beat him and he challenged uh, Foster, for the world heavyweight or for the world light heavyweight title. Now the interesting thing is Foster wins the title, and then he beats Charlie Polite by a knockout, and then he uh, beats uh, another fighter named Vic, and then he he uh, uh, Roger Rouse, and uh, who was a well-known fighter back then. And he beats them all by knockout. Tiger's getting knockouts in every fight now. He's going for it. So in '69, he fights a guy named Frankie DePaula, and they're not in the same class in terms of skill. I mean, Foster's an all-time great and DePaula isn't, but somehow, as happens in boxing from time to time, the stars aligned and DePaula knocked Foster down. And all 16,000 people at Madison Square Garden stood up and gasped at the same time. This can't happen. I mean, DePaula was a man of the people. The people loved him. You know, he was a, he was a, a, a people's fighter. They always cheered him. and foster gets up you know they wipe his gloves off moves his head around you could see his whole physical chemistry changing walks over and bang quick left hook and depala is out cold and sometimes it's better to let the the tiger keep sleeping because if you wake him up you're going to pay a fearful price and that's exactly what happened to frankie depala it's a fascinating story but he just dropped him and destroyed him um He knocked out Andy Kendall in 1969, and he closed in 1960s, went into the 70s with two more knockouts. So Foster, I remember watching him, and I was born in 1960, so I grew up watching Bob Foster, and uh, his voice always scared me because it was such a deep, bass voice. Uh, After he wins the light heavyweight title, uh, he has two more trips he wants to make to the heavyweight division, and now he gets more money. He gets more money because he's the world light heavyweight champion. He's not just a light heavyweight going up. So they got to pay him more money. Uh, He easily beats Lou Wallace, or Lee Wallace, excuse me. Lou Wallace wrote Ben Hur. Uh, Lee Wallace, he he beat him in uh, six rounds by a knockout. Wallace was a fringe contender, always in and around the top 15 or 20, but never really breaking any higher than that. And then in a defense hell against Roger Rouse, And he was upset because Roger Rouse made uh, comments um, about Foster before the fight, which weren't particularly uh, kind. And he knocked Foster out in one round, you know, or Roger Rouse. Foster was not a guy you wanted to piss off. You did not want to get on his bad side because a lot of fighters, when they get angry, they don't fight well. Foster fought better when he was angry. So to piss him off, you know, as Angel Dundee said to me, the guy already wants to bash your face, and why well, give him more motivation to do that by badmouthing him? just doesn't make sense. And, you know, he beats a guy named Mark Tessman in 10 rounds, and then he makes a mistake. He's got a challenge for the title, and he figures maybe Lightning will strike twice because I'm 6'3, Joe Frazier is 5'11 at most. and But Frazier was a born heavyweight, he was heavy set, you know, 210 and he could really punch Frazier is one of the all-time greats best left hook maybe in the history of the sport and he, he Foster fights him and he hangs in there the first round but Frazier's just finding the range he's throwing left hooks and they're just missing and I remember you know the announcer saying well Foster better be careful because despite the height difference is coming awfully close Fairtrade had no respect for Foster's power because his attitude was, he's a light heavyweight. I let him hit me with his best shot. I'm not going anywhere. And in the second round, he casted Foster with a left hook and bye-bye Bob Foster. That was it. And uh, Foster, it's frustrating because he, he, after that, he defeats a guy named Hal Carroll by knockout in four rounds. And, and then the Alphabet Boys started to get greedy and wanted more money for each title defense. And foster was saying to him, you can't do this i agree to pay you this much to defend your belt now you come back with just before the fight and say uh, now we want double or triple yeah i mean all the sanctioning bodies wba wbc um ibf wbo they're all run by criminals they're criminal organizations and um they've done more to hurt the sport than they have to help the sport and wba stripped him of the title but he was still recognized by the wbc as a champion is the wbc and wba dislike each other intensely they still do so foster became enraged at the wba and wba set up a fight between vicente rondon and jimmy dupree rondon won and um he foster said okay you, you want to give it to him i'll fight him and foster you know in a row beat quickly beats ray anderson tommy hicks and brian kelly and then he meets Rondon and the unification bout. And he's he's 1972 April 7th. It's in Miami, and boy, Foster enters the ring with the look, with the look of a man that was about to execute another man. He was just determined, focused, lasered in, and he goes out, and he's just pummeling Rondon in the first round. Second round comes and. You know, when you you don't really you're not really supposed to technically go for a knockout in boxing because if you do you're taking a risk and you're going to get hurt. But Foster was smart. He was a smart boxer. He started everything with his left jab because it opened up his body and allowed him to come over the top with the right straight right hand. And he comes after Rondon in the second round, and you know he's trying to decapitate him, and he catches him with a shot, and Rondon is out. I mean out out. And Foster probably enjoyed this victory uh, almost as much as winning the Light Heavyweight title first time from Dick Tiger. So Foster goes on and he keeps fighting and the fight comes up on November 21st, 1972. It's when Muhammad Ali was fighting uh, Jerry Corey and Corey is watching his brother Mike fight him and wow, you know, Corey's hanging in there. People are, I remember the broadcast where the broadcasters are saying, Corey's doing better than we thought he would. He Quarry is hanging in there with Bob Foster. No one thought he would go this far. And in the fourth round, he caught him with that, you know, fight ending lights out night, uh, left hook. And Quarry, uh, like I said before, I thought Corey was dead. I really thought he was dead. I mean, he hit the canvas, bang, and you know, no one moved. Foster thought he was dead. Foster didn't leave the ring. He just stood in his corner staring at him. And uh there's a great photo of Foster walking away seconds later, just looking back at him. Um, but thankfully Corey got up and he was fine. And that bout was uh amazing, but uh it was also special because it was the late Great Mills Lane first bout as a referee. And he said from that bout to the end of his career, he never saw a knockout like that. And he refereed for a long time. And um, he fought again in 1973 against a guy named Pierre Fourry. He made a mistake of fighting in South Africa and people got really upset about it. And he did it because he was black and Pierre Fourry was white. And um, he beat him the first time around. And in the rematch in South Africa, uh, you know, he defeated him again on points. So... He was starting to slip by this time. You know, he'd been boxing since 1959, professionally. So this is 13 years into his career. And there's a lot of wear and tear. Boxers' stamina and strength in the length of his career aren't infinite. Not by any means. You only have so much before your body says that's enough. There are rarities like Archie Moore, who because of racism was denied a shot at the Light Heavyweight title for a long time and still kept... Pers- kept on but he kept himself in phenomenal shape in and out of the ring uh george Foreman is another example because he could hit harder than a mac truck and and uh bernard hopkins but that's only three in the 320 year 23 hit, year history of modern boxing that's the only three guys who fought father time to a standstill so um Yeah, you know, the fight almost didn't come off in South Africa. It's the apartheid government didn't want to allow it, but it was. And his last defense of the world heavyweight title or light heavyweight title came in 1974. And I remember going to Maple Leaf Gardens to watch this because it was on the undercard of Ali Joe Bugner. And he fought a guy named Jorge Ahumada from Argentina. I never forgot his name because I thought Ahumada won. And, And the fight was declared a draw. Um, uh, and he got dropped by Ahumada. And when the fight was over, I remember my father saying, well, I think we have a new light heavyweight champion because I definitely think Ahumada beat Foster, but he, they called it a draw. Sometimes when it's an old champion like that, a popular champion, which Foster was, um, you know, they, they wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'll tell you one thing about Bob Foster and people wrote this all the time during his career. He brought the pain. I mean, man, could he punch. If you haven't seen him fight, you got to go on YouTube and watch it. Uh, he retired after that and came back in a year later in 75 and, and then retired for good in 1978 at the age of 36. And then he just, um, you know, he went into uh, Policing. That's, you know, he'd been dabbling in that all through his career. So he became a police officer of the uh, Bernard Little County Sheriff's Department and he became a detective and a well known policeman. Uh, He had a very um, tragic personal life. His first wife, he had four children married a lady named Pearl, divorced, and then he married a lady named Sue. They had a child named Nelson, and then he married Patricia Sayez in 82. And then she took her own life in 84. And then Foster has, has, got married a fourth time to a lady named Rosetta Benjamin. And I remember just, you know, this is only eight years ago. He died at the age of 73, November 21st, um, 215. And he was in a hospital in Albuquerque. And it, it was sad. I, I mean, he, he lived, he was 73, and still, I think you would look at it today as not enough years for anyone. but But you know, in the time I'd I'd gotten to meet him a couple of times, he 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 just uh, what he's just a real gentleman, just a kind person who treated everyone well, and you you know except for his physique and his nose, which is like most boxers' nose, and his calloused hands, you wouldn't know that he was a boxer because of his manner. Uh, He had uh, sixty-five fights, fifty-six wins, eight losses. Of his sixty-five fights. 46 were knockouts this is a man who was devastating when you got in close and he was the first and i think only person to cut muhammad ali ali beat him but he got cut him over ali's left eye and that in itself was a victory for him because no one had ever done that before but when ali went back to the corner angel dundee said stop playing with this guy go out get rid of him and ali did Ali said, I'm the much bigger man and physically stronger. And, you know, Ali made that distinction between the 60s and the 70s. In the 60s, I could win with my speed, with my feet and my hands. In the 70s, I had to knock people out because the speed was gone. Uh, Bob Foster and Dick Tagger fought a great fight. As I said, it only lasted four rounds. But when you watch that knockout, you just get such a rise. You know, it's almost it's, it's exhilarating, not for Dick Tiger, of course, but uh, it was as Gene Fomer said when he got knocked out by Sugar Ray Robinson. It's the painless way to go, because it's the punches you don't see that get you out of there. And Tiger, you know, his head—he wasn't looking at the left hand; he was ducking. And as as he came up straight to back out of a uh, uh, of enclose, he was backing out. You always back out with your hands up in a crouch he backed out straight up which is actually a European way to fight and that's what they do a lot in Europe and he fought in Europe a long time but Foster was waiting for it and caught him with the left hand and ended it and he fell in sections you know he just hit his head like a tether ball his knees went you know and and then his midsection then his chest and then his head and the thud You know, like when you hear something dropped off a building and Foster was the kind of guy, as I said before, and and this happened with Dick Tiger and Corey, but a lot of other fighters. When he knocked you out, there was always a fear that he could end someone's life. It's almost remarkable that Bob Foster didn't kill anyone in the ring, given his tremendous punching power. But people don't know the backstories. You get a guy like Foster and Tiger and you see them fighting at the elite level for a long time. And you think, well, you know, they make tons of money. Not true. You know, they didn't make tons of money. And Tiger had a big family back in Nigeria I had to support and was giving money to Biafra for the Civil War to his friends there. So um, my friend Ron Lipton, who's a great referee and uh, a real manch, and he knew Dick Tiger well, and he had nothing but great things to say about him. He said he was just such a gentleman. You know, Dick Tiger was the kind of guy when he was living in New York, you know, he might say to Ron, let's go out for breakfast. Or, you know, it's one o'clock, you know what, I'm going to go out and get an afternoon paper. Okay, I'll meet you. I'm going to go for a coffee. And Tiger would have a suit and tie and an overcoat on and a bowler hat. And Ron would say, why are you dressing up, champ, for getting a newspaper? He said, well, you know, I'm a world champion. I have to look dignified. I have to look respectful. That's, That's, you know, that's what I have to present to the world. It's disrespectful to have to treat other people if I was to dress sloppily expect to see a world champion dressed well. And so I dressed well. My own father is like that. That was quite a common ethos back then. So, and and Foster is more of a cowboy, you know, with the cowboy hat and the jeans and, and that. Now you're saying it doesn't really matter what they wear, but it shows you their temperaments. Tiger was always deadly serious. Foster was serious in the ring, but very casual outside of it. Most boxers, when they're outside of the ring, they like to forget it. And, and enjoy their time off before they have to get into the, back into the ring, because the rigors of, of the fight game mentally are as tough as they are physically. It's sad that we lost um, Tiger when we did uh, at a young age, but um, I don't think his body was ever recovered either. He's in the International Boxing Hall of Fame, as is Bob Foster. and. Um, Foster is another one of those guys that when I met him, I thought, I can't see anyone beating this guy. I mean, look how physically big he is, but he wasn't, he was tall, but he he wasn't physically big in the way that George Foreman, physically big, or Lennox Lewis, you know, lanky arms, but tremendous balance, tremendous leverage, and could hurt you with both hands, but orthodox fighter with a great left hook. And uh, Tiger was one of the most determined fighters ever to walk in the face of this earth. And You know, as he he was upset when he wasn't treated well. He treated people with dignity, and and he just thought it was so rude um, when people would say nasty things about him before a fight because he would look at his opponent and say, I don't hate you. You're not my enemy. This is just a professional sporting contest. That's all. I have nothing against you or your family. I'm trying to earn money for my family. You're trying to earn money for your family. No reason to say nasty things about me or insult me. And of course the fighters he would say that to felt really ashamed because he was right. He didn't hate anyone, but you know, he was a a two time world middleweight champion and two division world middleweight and light heavyweight. And he was only five, eight, you know, light heavyweights today, you know, you look at Arthur Beterbiev is what five eleven, six feet. Tiger, wasn't a big guy, you know, I'm taller than he was. And, and, uh just a magnificent fighter to watch. He knew what he was doing in the ring at all times. He was on top of his opponent at all times like Joe Frazier was against Ali. Accurate, short, hard punches like Bitter BF. And he was built to go the distance. Foster uh, liked to you know, set you up with that jab and then and then come over with the right hand. But he Foster was great if he could get you to lead and then he'd count to you. There's a lot of orthodox fighters like this with that vicious left hook and bang and that was it that is this edition of ring talk that was a fight between bob foster and dick Taggart, where foster won the undisputed world light heavyweight title and i think next to archie moore you would have to say foster is the greatest light heavyweight champion of all time just based on his punching power and his longevity in the ring I'm Lou Eisen. That's Ring Talk for this Sunday. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you again next week and enjoy your week. Bye bye.